Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Following the 2016 elections, there are many unanswered questions about what issues will dominate the agenda for our new president and Congress. In an eight part series, Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek's Washington, D.C. policy professionals and attorneys discuss their perspectives on the biggest issues facing the next administration. Brownstein's strategic advisors Barry Jackson and former Senator Mark Begich moderate bipartisan discussions on the first 100 days of Trump's presidency, as well as pressing issues like immigration, health care, financial services, tax and trade, education, infrastructure, and marijuana policy. In this episode, Policy Director Kate McCandless of Council Peter Goodloe and policy advisor Laura Johnson discuss what a repeal of the Affordable Care Act would look like and who will impact health care policy in the new administration and Congress. This is Mark Baggage. Uh, I've served in the U.S. Senate from Alaska for six years, been a mayor of uh, Anchorage, Alaska, been on the local city council and also in the business world for many years. So I joined the Brownstein firm almost two years ago, and it's been a pleasure. And uh, the topics that we cover are enormous. So I'm just glad to be here to be able to have a conversation with so many talented folks. Well, thanks, Mark. I'm Barry Jackson, and along with Mark, I serve as co-chair of the strategic practice here at Brownstein. I'm one of only two people that have served as chief of staff to the Speaker of the House and senior staff to the President of the United States. And along with my colleague here, Mark, I think we can provide you a pretty interesting back and forth about the role of the Congress and the role of the White House as a new administration and a new Congress takes place. So let's dive in. We're joined with Kate McCandless, Peter. Goodlow and Laura Johnson today. We're very excited to have you all here to talk about health care in the upcoming Congress and the new administration. Kate leads the health care government relations group at Brownstein, and with more than a decade of legislative, regulatory, and political experience, Kate is the go-to resource for health care advocacy in Washington, D.C. Peter Goodlow, also part of the Brownstein Health Care Government Relations Group, has served in Congress as a legislative counsel and parliamentarian at the U.S. House Committee on Energy and Commerce and over two decades in the U.S. House on Office of Legislative Counsel. And Laura Johnson is a member also of the healthcare group. We have a big group here for healthcare. It's a big topic for Brownstein. She focuses on primarily on early and secondary education, healthcare, and labor issues. Laura also oversees the firm on Lobbying Disclosure Act compliance, which probably takes most of your time. Um, but we're very happy to have you here, all three of you. We're excited because healthcare. I think maybe a year ago, people thought, well, we'll have to do some tweaking, but now it's a whole different ballgame with the new administration coming in. And maybe to start off, you could give us kind of like where we are today, knowing that the Trump um, incoming administration talk has been talking about and has nominated some folks that are really keen on replacing or repealing or whatever the phrase is today, but getting rid of ACA and changing it in some way pretty dramatically. So um, give us kind of the, the set, the stage, where we're at today and what it looks like as we move into the new session from an administration standpoint and also from the congressional standpoint. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll start. Um, I think that where we are today is so dramatically different than where we were a month ago that I think most of us are still in counseling, um, <laughs> trying to understand what it means for those of us who are going to be doing health care policy in the coming uh, administration. We are 
probably looking at a scenario where the major components of the Affordable Care Act are in some capacity uh, repealed early in the administration, uh, likely through reconciliation, which I assume we will discuss here in a moment. But uh, well, why don't you tell us what, how you see reconciliation? Because that is the topic. Is it a normal course of business where it will take 60 votes or will it be used process of reconciliation and 51 votes? I believe that the... Uh, the mechanism will be the, the process of reconciliation, which, as you said, uh, requires only 51 votes in the Senate. And it looks like right now that 51 or potentially 52, depending on how Louisiana shapes up, uh, will be the number of Republican senators that we have. And so uh, the process by which we remove the funding for uh, for the ACA, and, and that's really taking some of the the meat off of the bones uh, will likely be done through this this reconciliation process, which will be an incredibly partisan exercise. But involved in that and included in that will be instructions that will ultimately provide the basis for the update um, of, of the insurance market and, and of the system of coverage that we're intending to provide for uh, for all the, all Americans. And that, I think, is still something that people intend to do in a relatively bipartisan manner. Um, so the the defunding portion, uh, the, the repeal part, uh, will likely take place uh, through reconciliation. But I think that the replacement part, the rebuilding, uh, will be an exercise that extends for several years in, in, a, in a bipartisan way. Peter, is that something that's going to happen immediately? The, you know, that so they repeal it, are they going to just jump right in and flip a switch and everything's back in some format that's different, of course, but what happens? Well, in terms of chronology, what has to happen first, uh, we actually don't have um, a budget resolution agreed to for 2017 between the House and the Senate. And so for reconciliation to take place, there'll have to be a budget resolution, which potentially, depending on how things go, could involve uh, battles about uh, the budget. You know, but what's the top line number going to be? You know, they've had those discussions. But assuming that all plays out, um, the, the, uh, they'll quickly do a budget resolution, uh, which will give reconciliation instructions to the uh, committees of jurisdiction, uh, House Energy and Commerce, and Ways and Means, Senate Finance, and Senate uh, Help Committee. Uh, and these are uh, very broad Instructions. The details are left out to the to the committees, and the committees will eventually uh, produce uh, legislation that will form a, uh, the ACA repeal. And the uh, the the approach they're taking seems to be they want to immediately repeal, be able to pass legislation that says the ACA is is gone. However, there's going to be a delayed effective date for some period, perhaps even several years. And so they'll meet the political objective of saying we've repealed, but then the hard work of, of replacing it. And so, and one question is whether repealing the ACA evolves into health care reform more generally. So let me, Laura, let me ask you that um, as Peter described this repeal process, there also seems to be a lot of issues that theoretically Republicans and Democrats are agreeing on. So 26-year-olds staying on their parents' coverage, for instance. As you think about some of the clients we work with, how is that going to impact 
as this transition happens from the current state of ACA to whatever free market version the Republicans are talking with, how are the industry players, like the insurance guys, going to react to this kind of partial sense of we don't know where we're going? Um, I mean, I think that it's going to, you know, that there are going to be a lot of different um, entry points that, you know, pharma and the insurers and hospitals are going to have to to weigh in on the process, which I think, you know, only, you know, delays the, you know, the fast moving repeal and replace that, you know, I think it's going to be more of a piecemeal approach. Well, I think the one thing to really remember here is that the majority of the clients that we work with, um, they're socially responsible actors, right? And coverage is the number one goal. I don't think that you can take away from the bickering and the bipartisan or the, the partisan nature of the ACA that Republicans don't want people to have insurance and Democrats do. Um, it's just a disagreement on how we get there. And so for the majority of our clients, individuals maintaining coverage in a system is is paramount. And so it really doesn't change their direction. Um, they It may somewhat modify the things that they're supportive of. But I, I think most of our clients want to make sure that some of these uh, some of the good reforms that came out of ACA are are maintained. And I would say that that's true for uh, for the majority of, of folks here in Washington working on a replace effort. Okay. To, to follow up on that, one of the things originally in ACA, the debate was about access versus cost. And one of the things that President Obama and his team did was expand eligibility in Medicaid. And so a lot of the new coverage that came under ACA was Medicaid. We've heard President Trump talk about maybe that that's another path in this reform process. Can you talk a little bit about the role that the governors will play in this? Because I think most people think about ACA on the private side and and a little bit on the Medicare side, but it seems like Medicaid and the governors got a big voice in this. They absolutely did. I am recommending, this is free advice here, I am recommending to all of my clients, uh, if you have state lobbying practices in the states of Indiana or Georgia, pay those people well and get that in, that ramped up pretty quickly. Um, those are going to be model states, not that there won't be others. Uh, obviously, the, the governors are going to have a, a pretty significant voice. Um, you look at the six or so states that have received Medicaid waivers. Um, obviously, those will be blueprints for other states. Indiana will be the leader in the clubhouse, I think, on a lot of these issues. And you look at the Indiana waiver, um, you know, the in Indiana Medicaid recipients are required to pay a premium. It's uh, it, it's scaled based on income, but um, they're, they pay that premium into an HSA, which is another very bipartisan popular uh, reform. And so there are going to be those types of uh, – uh, of eligibility uh, requirements and things that could go into other states' uh, Medicaid programs. And then you now have a, an HHS secretary that might be more likely to grant waivers on, uh, on, you know, on different authorities. If I can add, add something. So from a, from a, you know, again, we have a very robust um, health care practice at Brownstein and has a lot of activity in it. When, when you look at the states, those examples you gave, Indiana, Georgia, are those are are they going to be not only models but will they lead to even more uh, greater reforms than just oh we'll just do this on Medicaid but look at this broader sweep of what they're doing and input uh, anybody want to answer attempt to answer that or in other words we get the Medicaid piece but suddenly does that change the dynamic of well look what these states are doing in the healthcare delivery system and it, you know should we 
be looking at that for clients to say, this is some models that we want to talk about here in Washington? Well, whether you're a pharma company, a hospital, or the governor of a state, there's a you've got to have some concerns about you have some there's a degree of uncertainty about where we're going to go. Uh, you know, if you're a hospital, a problem you had in the past was uh, uncompensated care. Right. The Affordable Care Act has happened with that has helped with that. Uh, if you're a pharma company, uh, you know you're, you're paying a, a tax right now, but the Affordable Care Act gives you. Uh, customers. Uh, how is that going to change? A Medicaid block grant from one perspective sounds w- wonderful to governors because they think of uh, unfettered discretion, but then uh, it's, it can boil down to uh, a situation where the federal government says, hands you a check each year and says, great, you know, good luck. And if, if it, and from a governor's perspective, what if that's not uh, enough enough money? So, Peter, two decades in a powerful staff position on energy and commerce, and whenever healthcare comes up, the policy debate is one side of it, the money is the other side of it. And some people could make an argument that ACA, a lot of the policy was crafted to fit into money types of issues. So now that we're eight years on into ACA and the budget implications have changed a great deal, can you talk a little bit about as a new president, a new Congress comes in and tries to do this, even if it is under reconciliation, where's the money going to come from? And tell, tell me how, whether pharma, as you said, or the hospitals or the insurance companies, which are usually where the Congress goes to try to dip into, how is this going to play out? Well, the, if you're going to repeal the, uh, the ACA, that means the pharma tax is going away. And, uh, and the device tax has is, is, is been suspended in any event uh, and, and, and was headed probably toward repeal. And, of course, your question is, uh, is a fundamental one because if you look at some of the, the players like Paul Ryan and Tom Price, uh, the budget is a key concern, and, and the uh, if the point is that we're going to have to have a, a sustainable system, that is, uh, the, the the revenues have to uh, cover the cost, and if the premise uh, is, uh, as it is for, um, I think, many Republicans, is that uh, we cannot have any increases in federal revenue, uh, what's going to happen? And particularly if we're also supposed to be having tax cuts, and, but we're going to be, have a sustainable budget. What happens? And so, uh, the you know the, the plan for uh, under uh, the Ryan and uh, Price approaches are to have um, tax credits to, to purchase um, health care if you're in, if you're in the individual market. Uh, on the employer side, they're going to cap uh, the exclusion for, for your employer's health care contribution. And Price talks about uh, having an opt-out of Medicare, Medicaid, uh, et cetera, so that uh, you could uh, also avail yourself of the tax credit approach. So, and I've also read some things where there's uh, there's an emphasis on everyone will be able to purchase catastrophic health coverage. But on the more preventive side, you hear a lot of talk about people need to have skin in the game, so that they'll, they'll function like normal normal consumers, and and, and weigh uh, the, the, the financial cost uh, with, with the b- benefits of receiving care. And so, you can't help but believe uh, to, to be have a sustainable budget. There's going to have to be some push down on um, 
of, of, of the degree of, of coverage. But the parameters are, are not clear yet. Let me, let me ask this. I'm thinking with um, Congressman Price being the nominee and what that impact may be, and maybe Laura, Kate, you can respond to this, and that is, so he, I mean, he's already kind of laid his ideas on the table, right? I mean, it's not, it's not going to be new stuff from his perspective. There's obviously some modifications he's going to have to look at to the president-elect and what, what he wants. But my assumption is that he'll be a driving force uh, behind this on the policy end. There might be the politics in the White House, but he'll be the driving force. Is that a fair? First, that's the first question. Is that a fair statement, both of you, on a... Yeah, I think so. And I think one area where, you know, at least on the the policy side where we've seen um, Congressman uh, Price, uh, chairman of the Budget Committee, weigh in is on, you know, CBO scoring of some of the, uh, you know, some of the demonstration projects that were included in, in the ACA through the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. You know, and I think that will be, you know, a key area when they, you know, are figuring out the content of, of replaces. How is that, you know, how are these projects scored? Are they savers? And how does that fit into the, the broader context? And I'm so glad that Laura brought that up because I think that... Um, Good job, Laura. I think to, to really go back to Barry's point, um, you know, Congress for the longest time has had the handcuffs of CBO um, and and had this unfortunate direction where we aren't scoring things in a dynamic way. And it can it's safe to say that, that Congressman Price uh, has a healthy skepticism of CBO. And I think that Secretary Price will probably be the voice in the administration that pushes back um, when some of these proposals are scored and says, yes, but we have to look at the outcome from a health perspective and, and really make some real world assumptions about what these scores are going to be. And I think, you know, that that's a good point to, to bring out because that he's working through that process. You'll have this kind of, and tell me if you believe this is going to happen. I'm, as you were talking, I'm visualizing a whole tax reform coming, which costs money, an infrastructure bill that costs money, a desire by President-elect Trump to increase defense spending, which is a big number, and then repeal, which will be a cost in most minds because you're taking away revenue streams through the Budget Act. Then if you want to replace, it costs money. But the dynamic scoring is going to be a critical piece to that to help get these numbers right. Is that, And that's where Congressman Price has a strong view. I think that's absolutely right. Um, he's going to have, being a, a practicing physician, he's right. going to have real-world experience. He's going to have had experiences and make assumptions uh, from his own uh, perspective that will inform what he thinks an overall score should look like. And I don't think that you can discount the fact that he has, as budget committee chairman, really held CBO to the fire on, on many, many occasions over these types of issues. So I, I certainly think that he's going to be that voice. I also think, however, as we were talking earlier about how long it could take to transition to this new system, that he and uh, uh, President Trump and any other uh, a Republican Congress or, frankly, a, a split or a Democratic Congress could find themselves in a situation where we have put together this promise of replace. There is a date certain and we don't meet it. Remember the super committee? Right. So legislatively or funding or both. Or both. Mm-hmm. And uh, for those of us in the healthcare care uh, arena who have 
just recently started to recover from the wounds of the SGR, um, you could see yourself in a situation where we are constantly having to fill this hole. And to your point, it might be much more costly than we intended at the beginning. So let me ask uh, a a final question. Um, All this talk about ACA and Obamacare, but as you know, another big part of health care reform that President Trump talked about was the Veterans Administration system. And here at Brownstein, we're fortunate to have Secretary Jim Nicholson as as one of our partners. In, in, uh, and I was just wondering, could you guys talk a little bit about what you see the possibilities for VA health reform? And does that get mixed up in this ACA debate? I think there is an opening for it to get mixed up. Uh, As Pete mentioned earlier, there have been discussions, uh, particularly around the tax credit proposals, that would allow for not just those who are enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid to seek the advanceable tax credit, but also anyone who is on a government health care system, and that would include TRICARE and VA recipients. So you could find... uh, Those who are interested in more privatization of the VA, suggesting to their members or friends uh, that they actually go out and seek out the tax credit and purchase their insurance themselves and circumvent the VA system. And by shrinking those numbers and shrinking the VA healthcare system's influence, I think you could see uh, certain changes starting to occur. So would that, would that in, in your mind then, does that mean that you said the infrastructure. So does that mean the number of VA facilities and all start to be challenged because people just take a voucher, as it will, and I'm going to go to my local hospital and skip the VA completely. I think that the the goal for a lot of people who are thinking deeply about the future of VA health care is a specialty care system where there are specialists who know and focus on veterans and veterans' disorders and things that are specific to that population, but a general primary care system where veterans can access primary care the same way that you and I do. And so, yes, eventually some of these CBOX and hospitals that are primary care focused or only have, uh, you know, certain services on certain days could potentially see closures. We have some uh, folks that we do work with in the firm within the Indian tribe community. So you have Indian health care, which is kind of, you know, got to reauthorize permanently under ACA. So, of course, the first thoughts that I've heard from some are, are they going to unravel that? And what does that mean? Your conversation about VA kind of brings this into light. So anyone want to comment on what, what, what could or may not? Maybe it's kind of no one touches it for now, or is it part of the equation? There was just a story that ran recently um, about an Indian Health Service hospital that has seen five, I believe, um, deaths in the last several months, all of which should have and could have been preventable. Um, Stories of practitioners who were looking for uh, fetal heartbeats with monitors whose batteries were dead. And just the, the, the level of care that the Indian Health Service right now is able to provide is unfortunately unsustainable. Um, it is now starting to reach levels of national coverage. We're hearing um, news stories. People are uh, focusing in on this issue. And so I hope that as we're talking about um, you know, changes to systems like VA, we're talking about uh, the Indian Health Service as well. You know, it's, it's not as defined of a benefits package as some of our other federal health care programs. And so maybe putting some parameters around it and increasing um, you know, the level of coverage will be helpful. Uh, but there's a lot that needs to be done in the Indian Health Service. So, so let me ask uh, 
both Peter and Laura and Kate, if you want to chime in on this, is an easy question, and that's on Medicare. Um, <laughs> that is, do you, no one's mentioned it. You know, they popped it up a little bit in the campaigns, and then it kind of vanished. And if I remember reading President-elect Trump's view on Medicare is just don't mess with it, leave it alone. But I always know from the House side, there's always a little pressure over there to reform, quote, entitlement programs. So do you think that's going to be, Peter, do you, I mean, is that going to be part of the equation here by some maybe, I don't know what side, probably the House, my guess, members over there? Well, uh, Paul Ryan said just last week that he thinks that uh, the effort to repeal and replace Obamacare is going to have to go hand in hand with changes to, to Medicare. Do you think that's going to be a confrontation with the President-elect Trump, who said well, not that, interested? That, that, <laughs> I mean, I think it's going to be interesting. That's, that's a very good point. It's the one we haven't really uh, really uh, discussed in any detail yet. You know, the, uh, the President-elect in the past has indicated he favors universal coverage. He didn't campaign on cutting entitlements. Right. <laughs> and uh, uh, he's sort of the transition uh, websites and statements are, are, are somewhat vague. He's talked about health savings accounts. And so uh, if there's a big push to, uh, uh, to, to make changes in Medicare, is the president going to support it? And meanwhile, uh, there, uh, there are uh, prominent Republicans in Congress who are expressing some nervousness about right. dealing with Medicare at this point. So. Well, let me say on behalf of Barry and myself, thank you guys very much. We, as we say at Brownstein, we've got a great health care group that's uh, uh, large and growing. And uh, Kate, Peter, and Laura, thank you for joining us this morning thank in you. our thank conversation. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.